Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. How the Supreme Court has evolved through history and could change further now. You're listening to a Humankind special, part of our series Judicial Independence. I'm David Freudberg. When the founders of America first framed their new republic, the Constitution was exciting, fresh, and, like all experiments, unpredictable. Most nations then were ruled by kings, not a government of, by, and for the people. The framers understood human nature well enough to realize that citizens governing themselves are capable of trampling the rights of others. So they wisely established a system of checks and balances, including courts led by federal judges. It wasn't a super prestigious job in the beginning. Emily Bazelon at Yale Law School. And I think the framers weren't exactly sure how it was going to work and like what they needed to do to make um, the best lawyers interested in serving as federal judges. Um, I just I think it was a decision made at a very different time. In the country's first century, justices on the Supreme Court were expected to journey long distances by horseback or carriage to hold hearings. Local district judges would be joined at trial by two Supreme Court justices who had traveled the circuit. It was a grueling life. Not until 1935 was there even a Supreme Court building to house the magisterial inner sanctum of law that we know today. Now that each Supreme Court justice is infused with so much power, to have any one person exercise that much power for 20 or 30 or 40 years, it just seems like a really bad idea to me. Um, It's not that I hold it against any one of them in particular, um, but I just think we should have more turnover. And I also think that we could make Supreme Court confirmations less um, horrible and fraught for the country if we had 18-year staggered terms in which each president got to pick two Supreme Court justices. That might somewhat lower the stakes and the temperature over court appointments, which currently last a lifetime. Judges today, of course, live a lot longer than in 1789 when the Judiciary Act established the Supreme Court. Setting term limits for justices is one of several interesting ideas being considered for reform of our federal courts. I am guardedly favorable to that. Jonathan Adler of Case Western University School of Law. Certainly the transition rules, how do you transition from a court where justices were nominated and confirmed 
for lifetime appointments to adjust a court on which they serve 18-year terms or something like that um, need to be worked out. But I think it's a serious proposal that's worth consideration. I also think that if we're talking about um, uh, adopting it prospectively, it is the sort of a reform that might be able to be done without a constitutional amendment. Supreme Court appointments have long been consequential, but the debates have not always been so stridently partisan as today. Kimberly Atkins of the Boston Globe. Now we've seen that politics have been inserted into the court no matter when these appointments come up, no matter when these vacancies come up, uh, in such a way that has really caused Americans to lose faith uh, in the objectivity of the court and in the institution um, of the court itself. So if those battles are going to be fought, better they be fought as part of uh, elections elections of, of senators, elections for president, then be fought over each individual nomination of a Supreme Court justice in a way that causes people to distrust these justices, basically. So I think that probably if, you're, if your goal is to take the politics out of it, um, it's, it's a, a, a good goal. How you achieve it is the tricky part. The Constitution specifies that once federal judges are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, they can hold their office during good behavior, in other words, for life, unless they've misbehaved, that is. But people advocating proposals to reform the Supreme Court say there may be a kind of loophole. That's precisely what happens with other federal judges, right? Um, you see, for example, appellate judges reach something called senior status, where um, they can still be active, they can still participate uh, in, in some measure, but they, are, they don't carry the full caseload that they, that they used to once they reach a certain age. One of the proposals um, could provide that uh, justices, once they reach uh, the end of their prescribed terms, could also reach a senior status and still be active and do things like, for example, pick the cases. Which is one of the more creative ideas formulated by a Yale Law School student and published in the New York Times. A lot of the politicizing of the Supreme Court results from which cases the court weighs in on. Chief Justice John Roberts famously stated the role of a judge is merely to call balls and strikes like an umpire in baseball. But today's Supreme Court also selects which cases it will hear. In other words, it chooses the batters as well. The court has a tremendous role in who comes up to bat, and you are seeing individual justices uh, make make public pleas through through their opinions and their dissents um, to to pick who they think should be up up at bat so we, we're definitely seeing that that's an apt description that allows the justices to kind of tip the scales in favor of cases about policies they might want to endorse or to reject on things like gun rights or civil rights or a host of thorny politically charged issues Nothing in the Constitution guarantees that the Supreme Court selects its own cases. Congress could establish a different protocol. So you can set up a, a, an a independent commission, uh, independent body to decide which cases the court takes up. That can be done by other federal court judges, a, a panel of other federal court judges. Um, 
there, there are many ways to reform who does the picking of these cases so that the Supreme Court isn't tempted um, to show its own hand by inviting these cases uh, to be brought before the court. The Supreme Court used to hear many, many more cases than it currently does. I mean, now we have a docket that's usually between 50 and 60 cases a year, and it's highly tailored to the court's own taste. And so I think this idea is to um, have a process for selecting cases that is outside of the justice's own control. I do sort of like the idea of other judges deciding, because I think that appellate court judges have a clear sense of the kinds of disputes that they think that the Supreme Court needs to weigh in on. And so that way, their sense of how the law is developing would weigh into the Supreme Court's choices. We're exploring proposals to reduce the politicization of our judiciary, which at times feels like a theater of combat in a bitterly divided country. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on the segment, part of our project Judicial Independence, to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. In the stormy aftermath of President Biden's election, the campaign of Donald Trump and allied organizations filed dozens of lawsuits in state and federal courts, including the Supreme Court. It was an unprecedented effort to overturn an election based on disproven conspiracy theories. As president, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. That is why I am determined to protect our election system, which is now under coordinated assault and siege. At least 86 different judges, some appointed by President Trump, rejected the cases as lacking merit, according to The Washington Post. In the end, courts across the nation spoke with near unanimity to uphold the essential structure of the Constitution. It showcased the vital role of our judiciary, which had been sorely tested in recent years by political clashes over Supreme Court nominations. I think the main consequence that Americans should be concerned about are consequences for what we ourselves, the public, thinks about the Supreme Court. Law professor Aaron Tang of the University of California, Davis. When justices are confirmed by near unanimous margins, as was true almost as, just as recently as um, uh, Anthony Kennedy and, and you know, Scalia uh, during the Reagan administration, um, when you know, Democrats and Republicans alike can vote for these justices, the public can believe that these justices will uh, act fairly and impartially without regard to political preference. Um, right, That's the message we get when our Democratic senators say, you know what, this guy was com- uh, appointed by, Justice Kennedy was appointed by a Republican president, but we think um, he's qualified for the job. The American public can, t- can take that signal and believe in the integrity of the judiciary. But when um, confirmations are so hotly contested along partisan lines, Democrats, uh, as we've seen, progressives as we've seen recently in, in sort of public discourse, may worry 
that the current Supreme Court is illegitimate because outcomes are directed by politics of the of the justices, and, and maybe they worry that the justices are beholden to the uh, the president who confirmed them, um, and that's just a very dangerous thing. If Americans can't have trust in the integrity of the law. Um, we start to slide down the path that we've seen in, you know, I, I hate to sound alarmist, but failed democracies, Peru, Poland, other countries where courts lost the trust of the people, um, presaged failures in those, in those democracies. And as the nation has witnessed, nothing less than the peaceful transfer of power is on the line when our courts affirm the legitimacy of a national election. I think the country wants a court that is navigating a kind of middle path and is not necessarily, um, you know, going in one extreme direction or the other. But another concern hovers over appointments to the federal bench. More so than at any point in America's past, special interests with explicit policy agendas are shaping the selection of judges. This only adds to a sense that the courts are politicized. Kimberly Atkins of the Boston Globe. In history, uh, we've seen presidents communicate with members of the Senate who have the uh, advice and consent function in, in confirming judges. Presidents would go to and talk to senators and, and float names and ask them uh, about candidates who they think they could uh, come together and, and form the basis of consensus in passing these justices. We saw President Donald Trump completely abdicate his role in choosing judges and justices to an outside uh, group, the Federalist Society, which compiled a list, even when he was a candidate, of potential Supreme Court justices, conservatives, you know, conservative conservatives, from whom uh, he could choose when there was a vacancy. So that was a dramatic shift in power right there. Yeah, I actually think it's totally fine to have lists of potential Supreme Court nominees on the record. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times and Yale Law School. I don't think it politicizes the choice any more than some of the other um, challenges we've been talking about. And in some ways, it's just a way of being clear with the voters about what your plans are. So I did not have that objection to President Trump's selection process. But the role of the Federalist Society, given its outsize influence, deserves special attention. Here's investigative reporter Jane Mayer of The New Yorker magazine in an interview by Washington Week from WETA. It goes back to 1971, where uh, the conservative businessmen of America kind of became appalled at what they thought was an anti-business atmosphere in the country. Um, they were particularly angry about the consumer movement and Ralph Nader, and they got organized. And among the targets that they had in mind, and they, there's a paper about it that was written in 1971, is taking back the courts. They felt the courts were uh, t too lenient and they wanted to make them more pro-business. In her 2016 book, Dark Money, Jane Mayer meticulously reconstructed the flow of massive financial resources to this movement. And those organizations include the Federalist Society, which has been funded by a lot of corporate money. So if you take a look at, it's, a, it's a basically a conservative legal group, a, a, a kind of a professional association, kind of a club. Um, and you take a look at its clout today, 
uh, in the in the Trump administration, 86 percent of the ju the judges, the federal judges who President Trump has appointed, have been members of the Federalist Society. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it, it's it's really become. Um, a very powerful organization. And is substantially funded in the way many special interest groups conduct political operations. And there's a ton of dark money in this, by which I mean money from a handful of huge donors, millions and millions of dollars, that is uh, where you, it's anonymously given. So it's very hard to see who's trying to buy the courts. Not everyone, though, is bothered by funding that lacks transparency. Jonathan Adler of Case Western University Law School. A lot of the progressive organizations that, that actually lobby and advocate on uh, judicial nominations, groups like Demand Justice, get their uh, funding from sources that are not fully disclosed. Uh, my view is we should judge organizations by their actions and by what they do, um, not by concerns about you know who some secret funder is. Uh, and you know someone who's been involved with the Federal Society at this point for decades, um, you know, I think that the organization is, is it's pretty clear what the organization as an organization does, the programs it's, it sponsors, the events it sponsors, the network opportunities it facilitates, and it should be evaluated on that basis. But when large infusions of cash affecting our courts are concealed from public view, it presents a fundamental problem in democracy, says Emily Bazelon at Yale. The influence of dark money, the fact that we don't know which donors are contributing to these organizations and that we don't know how much, yes, that definitely concerns me for the same reason that the influence of dark money throughout politics concerns me. I don't see how voters are supposed to evaluate these kinds of influences if we don't know who is writing the checks. Um, and I also just worry in general about the influence of of very wealthy individuals and corporations over our political process, and this is an example of that. The Federalist Society, based in Washington, counts as members more than 70,000 practicing lawyers. Conservative legal activist Leonard Leo co-chairs the society's board and was a confidant of President Trump. Leo was described in a Washington Post profile as the maestro of a network of interlocking nonprofits working on media campaigns and other initiatives to sway lawmakers by generating public support for conservative judges. In a lecture, he laid out his criteria for selecting federal judges. The commitment to the Constitution the way the framers meant it to be, and that means interpreting it according to its uh, words, its, its uh, original public meaning, but also understanding that there is an inextricable relationship between the structural features of our Constitution that limit government power and the preservation of freedom and human dignity. It's a very important part of the process, finding people who believe that. In the 2020 confirmation battle over Judge Amy Coney Barrett, activist groups right and left ran broadcast ads. Judge Barrett has been nominated for the Supreme Court. And yet again, the left has amped up their smear campaign. Judge Barrett is a brilliant, fair, and impartial judge who upholds the rule of law and respects the Constitution. Her stellar My husband and I started trying to have a baby right after our wedding. When we couldn't get pregnant, we started IVF. Our story is special because it's ours, but it isn't unique. 
If Amy Coney Barrett is appointed, I am scared. She supported a group that wants to criminalize the way I got pregnant. Doctors who perform it... In the end, with emotions high on both sides, Judge Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court by a 52 to 48 vote, once again illustrating America's sharp partisan divide. In considering ways to depolarize America's courts, some observers point to the shifting demographics of the United States. The suggestion is that diversifying the pool of judges who sit on the bench would tend to produce rulings that more accurately reflect the country as a whole. Law professor Aaron Tang of the University of California, Davis. There's an empathy gap in the federal judiciary right now. All, there's all sorts of social science research showing that you know we um, are predisposed for subconscious reasons as human beings to listen more closely to people who look like us, who have same similar background experiences as us, um, and that's you know that's I think not a good thing when the judiciary is overwhelmingly white and male. Um, and not just for, for sort of demographic, you know, visible demographic markers, but sort of background experience also, right? It's not a good thing that we've got all elite lawyers from elite law schools in the, in, that have stocked the federal courts. Um, all sorts of diversity count. Congress did take an historic step toward diversification when it confirmed Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court in February 2022. She's the first African-American woman and the first former federal public defender to be appointed, which for some is a welcome start. There are some really excellent proposals afloat to diversify the professional backgrounds of judges in a way that could also create more racial and ethnic and socioeconomic diversity. Emily Bazelon at The New York Times. So we right now have a federal bench that tends to be skewed toward corporate law practice and prosecutors. If we had more judges who had been public defenders or civil rights lawyers, um, that could really make opportunities for people who just see the law differently. It could just open up the kind of lens of the judiciary, encouraging people to come to the bench who have the kinds of jobs that sometimes appeal to people of color because they have a sort of social, socially relevant component to them. These proposals do not advocate lowering the standards for who should be entrusted to serve as a judge in our federal courts. Rather, they are intended to broaden out the definition of who is genuinely qualified. I mean, you would ask different people for their recommendations about who should go on the bench. Instead of going to the U.S. Attorney's Office and asking them to pick their ambitious prosecutors, you would go to the biggest civil rights groups in the same way that now, um, you know, the people who put together these lists in federal or state administrations usually go to the top corporate law firms. One issue that judges uh, consider and that we think about in law school is how much judges should consider how their decisions impact people. Kimberly Atkins of the Boston Globe. How the, uh, the ability uh, of the parties before them to navigate the result of how they rule, whether that should play a role in their decision-making process. I think it should. And I think that role is even greater when you have justices who have broad backgrounds, who know what it's like to own a farm, who know what it's like to run a business, who know what it's like to defend someone accused of a crime. 
Um, I think that that would only make the rulings and the deliberations over the cases that come before the court even more meaningful um, and have a um, give justices a better vantage point um, in in deciding the way they do. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Associate producers Fred Tice and Mark Kilstein. Editorial assistance from Kathy Graham, Ken Rogers, Andrew Logan, Drew Mazias, and Jake Kavicki. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to the late Raymond L. Freudberg. Also to Steve Martin, Art Cohen, Laura Carlo, David Cruz, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. And you can purchase a CD copy of this program by phone. Please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. It's available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, NPR One, Radio Public, and elsewhere. This segment, part of our Project Judicial Independence, is Humankind Program number 283. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.